Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. When someone close to us dies, having a reminder of them that you can see every day and keep close to you can be a great comfort. So it's no surprise I'm drawn to Lori Mason's memorial quilts. Each piece that she creates is thoughtfully designed with the deceased loved one in mind. She gets to know about them and transforms garments like their favorite Hawaiian shirts, their judges' robes, uniforms, and other personal fabrics into a piece of art that reflects their lives. Head over to lauriemasondesign.com and check out examples of how she honors each individual's unique life with her art. Her process is well-documented and will give you a sense of the curiosity and intention that she brings to each quilt project. It's a wonderful gift we can give ourselves, snuggling under a quilt that's an artful remembrance and celebration of those we love. Head over to lauriemasondesign.com or to our show notes to learn more. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Beth Bloomclots is biracial. She was adopted when she was five weeks old into a progressive white family where she was raised alongside her two white older brothers. Her family was loving and supportive, but as she grew up, her experience outside of the home would at times be quite different. Now a mother to a young adult son, she worries for him and society's bias due to the color of his skin. Following the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer and the nationwide protests calling for an end to the killing of Black people, we felt it was important to immediately address this moment. The deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery are only further proof that systemic racism still infects the core of our society. Even in our perceived liberal bubble of Portland, racism remains an undercurrent, an ever-present source of grief for the Black community. This is not Black people's problem. Brown, Asian, Native American, anybody else. It's not our problem. It's the white people's problem, but they don't want to govern and manage themselves. And so they're looking for us to come through and drop all this wonderful knowledge and wisdom when it's not our problem, but it's yours, white people. It's not my problem. I'm not the one coming to you and saying you're not good enough and I'm not going to let you in a class. I'm not going to hire you. I'm not going to allow you to date my child. I'm not going to, you know what I mean? I'm not the one trying to keep you down. I'm not the one who is silent when I watch something on the news and saying that's really too bad. And hey, who wants to go to a movie? Let's go skiing. <laughs> Let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's barbecue. I'm not the one who's ignoring what's happening. I feel it every single day. This moment feels like it holds so much promise. It holds a lot of pain. It holds a lot of pain, but it also holds a lot of promise. What do you want to see happen 
What do you think is possible right now? I want to see white people hold their people accountable. I want to see people do what's right. Stop acting like this isn't happening. Get involved. When the protests are over, stay connected. This is 24-7, 365 days a year. This racial pandemic that we're in is not just because there's a virus and people are stressed out. This was happening before the virus. This was happening before Rodney King. This was happening, you know what I mean? This has always been happening. And at some point, we have to remember, you know, you can't think this is like going to church for the holidays. This is every day. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't Black History Month. It's every day. Yeah, I think about my son's safety every single day. And I feel relieved when it's a new day and we made it through the day before. How much stress am I putting my body through? How much longer could I live? How much better could I live? How much, how higher of quality of life could I experience if I didn't have to worry about my son? And then it's not just my son, my friends. I know what they go through. And I see so many promising guy friends who aren't doing anything now because they gave up. But I get it. I get why they gave up. I don't know one white person who can take being kicked and beaten down month after month after month after month and still into their 40s be successful, you know, in their career and their family and whatever. All these issues that we're dealing with, it starts from childhood. The medical care, there's all kinds of studies. Daryl Milner taught at Portland State for years all about Black history in Oregon. It's still happening. The pictures of people, they're still alive. Those are my friends, uncles and aunties and, you know, their grandparents. But the amount of stress that we have to feel just to live, it's unnecessary. You know, but I will say also we're resilient people because those of us who are making it, that's a strong person. You better watch out. <laughs> Children who grow up with trauma, which is really every child of color, mm -hmm. when they're loved, they become resilient. When they don't have those supports and they're not reminded of their value, rather than resilience, if you don't provide nurturing from all direction, it does something akin to like PTSD. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's very real. That is real. I mean, they found... We have more miscarriages because of the stress that we're feeling. And then you put on top of that not getting as good of care. We have more child deaths. And there's lots of information out there if somebody really genuinely wants to know. So I always just encourage people to educate yourself. Um, look up anti-racism. You know, it's not enough to say I'm not a racist. It's not enough to say right. I have a family member who is Black or I have friends who are Black. That's not enough. Right. You know? and, yeah. and I realize it's inconvenient, but you know what? It's inconvenient for us every time we have to deal with someone else's fear, every time we have to deal with someone else's ignorance, and we have to 
maintain calm. Um, and then that still doesn't guarantee us our life. This lady in New York City, I mean, she wanted him to be arrested or killed. She did not care. And then wants to come out and say, I'm not a racist, but you used your privilege and you were not even being threatened. I just watched that video for the first time day before yesterday because the toll that it takes on me physically, it's hard. It's really hard. And so when I hear everybody talking about it, it kind of prepares me and then to go watch it. And I finally watched it and I was just amazed at how she worked herself up. And I've been in those situations. And I know my son doesn't tell me everything. I didn't tell my parents everything. They don't know everything I've been through because there's nothing they can do. And then these white parents, like they're multiracial families, and one of them is white, the mom or the dad. I run into it more with the mom, where the mom feels like if they just raise their kid correctly, it'll be fine. But that's racism. Right. You saying that Black people can't raise their kids? You saying that Black people don't know? You know better how to raise a Black child than a Black person? And you've never experienced? There was an article that was put out. It was, it was maybe, I don't know, it might have been 15, 20 years ago. It was a white mother of a Black child. And she acknowledged, you know, all these things that I just said that she felt that she could do better and this and that. And she realized how wrong she was when her son was not with her and he got pulled over by a police officer and he survived, thankfully. But what he went through and what he told her, what happened, she broke into tears and she finally realized her son was really black. Hmm. And we have people in Portland who really believe that they're black because their child is black or they're black because their spouse is black. No, baby, you can, anytime you're not with your family member, you are treated as you. And you, your, your child or spouse or partner might be treated better because they're with you when you're together. It's crazy. And that's what my son deals with. You know, that's what he's realizing right now is he's not treated the same as his family. And he doesn't want his cousins to be treated the way he's treated. But it hurts knowing that he's treated the way he's treated because of his skin color. And he's a beautiful man, physically looking as well as his heart, his center and everything. But you know, he and his friends, they're angry. And we all go through this phase, not, not phase like teenager, two-year-olds, whatever, but we go through this time where you were angry. And we can be angry again later. Like I felt angry yesterday. I felt angry the day before. I felt angry, but I'm able, I have a skill set. I'm able to process it. I'm able to be healthier about it. I went to school at Pitzer College in California and my sophomore year, I called my mom and I said, I just hate all these white people. And she was like, Peter, telephone. And my dad, <laughs> you know, because she knew, I mean, but I had to get it out, you know, and these kids are angry now. You know, I'm thankful that my dad was able to be there for me. He understood. He grew up being of Jewish descent in Chicago. So he, he understood 
And he still knew that by him being white complexion, that he's not treated the same everywhere he goes because not everybody knew. You know what I mean? Like he could still oh, I know. pass at times. He could still get away from it at times. I don't have that opportunity. My son doesn't have that opportunity. My friends, my nieces and nephews who are black, they don't have that opportunity. They can't pick and choose when they want to deal with it. And that's what I mean. It's like, it's not our problem. Right. We're not holding ourselves down. Even if we do something stupid, if you peel off the layers, why are we doing what we're doing? It goes back to what we are learning to feel about ourselves, which works in favor of white privilege. It works in favor of those who do feel like we are the lesser race and whatever, or any non-white race is less. It works in favor of them that we have to struggle and go through this psychologically. But as you're seeing all across the country, people have had enough. People are not going to sit here and keep watching people get killed and people getting off as though they didn't do anything. And then somebody else going to jail for some crime that has nothing to do with taking anybody's life. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. I feel thankful because I knew other families, blended families. You know, you can be blended because people have, you know, divorce and remarry and have stepkids. But the blended that I grew up knowing more of, my parents made sure I saw other families that were white and had adopted, you know, kids that were not white. So they weren't necessarily all black, but they were not white. And the beautiful thing about that was they didn't have to teach me with words. They taught me through experience and interactions that there were other people like me. So I always felt very comfortable and I had a self-confidence about being adopted. That was never an issue for me. I never felt bad about being adopted. I never felt like I was lacking. It was still a very large part of who I was because everybody could see it. If I'm hanging on my mom or my dad's arm, if I'm tagging along, trying to keep up with my brothers, you know, people could see there's this little black kid. People always asked questions and talked about it and or made comments. And it didn't phase me because I felt like I was a normal kid. It was when I was outside the home on my own going through life that I realized my skin color was an issue, not for my family, but for society. And I had many experiences from early on that let me know that I was different. And my, my dad, he began explaining to me, you are Bloomclots, you are one of us. But when you step outside this house, society sees a black girl. And when you grow up, society will see a black woman. So I've never been ashamed of being mixed. 
My issues were never because I didn't like myself. What I dealt with was because other people did not like me. We think of Portland as being such a progressive place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people do. But the reality is Portland has a very racist history. Mm-hmm. As does Oregon. There's a there's a friction between those two ideas of being a really progressive place and yet a progressive place that has never really confronted racism. You're absolutely right. And it's, you know, I had a conversation with my chiropractor just last week, and he's great. I mean, he welcomes my community, his community, just, you know, he is very open to everybody and serving everyone. I would think that he was more of the woke white people. However, he said something to me that made me realize he wasn't with everything that had just happened. It was like a day or two after George Floyd had been murdered. He asked me if it seemed like people were talking more about these racial issues a racial pandemic that we have in the United States where people speaking up more about it or having conversations. And I just laughed. And I was like, no, this is, we've been dealing with this our entire lives. This is not new. I do believe though, as I thought about it, was kind of like when the civil rights, when I've watched documentaries and so forth and hear people speak about it, when they saw on television in Alabama, how the fire hoses, the uh, police were using them and the, the dogs and so forth on you know peaceful protesters. When they were using all of that, when they saw that on TV, and that's also when the government could no longer ignore it. I do feel like that's happening more and more. People are having their video cameras out and ready. And that's what's changing this moment It's the fact that now that we all have this ability to document things in real time and with social media being able to share that and amplify the truth that can be seen on video, that's what's making this moment possible. Yeah, I I feel like it's more people can't ignore it. Black people. And it's not even just black. I mean, you have, you know, we have, you know, brown We have Asian, we have Native American. People have been speaking up. People have been saying, hey, there's a problem. We've got, you know, we're not being treated the same. And it's been ignored. And so now that people are angry, people are pissed off, they're not going to tolerate anymore. Now it's like, hey, why aren't we having a conversation about it? Shoot, we tried, you know, we tried. I'm not saying it's okay to vandalize and cause physical harm and damage to people or property. But what I'm saying is when people do things peacefully, when people see not just police officers, but just people found innocent for taking another person's life, and we hear it in a recording on a 911 call, Trayvon Martin, you know, we see just in the New York City Central Park, this woman used her white privilege directly. She infused herself with hysteria. <gasps> I'm ups- <gasps> this African-American man. I'm feeling threatened or whatever her exact words were. But she talked herself up into a frenzy. 
But this has been happening. I experienced that when I was in college. That was 30 years ago. And you have, you have a son who is college age. And I'd like to ask you about how that must feel to have a son who's out in the world, knowing what the atmosphere is like, knowing that implicit bias is there. You've, you've experienced it in your life. Anybody who has children who loves their kids, they'll do anything for their kids. My son is my heart. I would do anything for him. And I don't just mean it in words. If I have to run to where he is, I would do that. And I fear, I fear for him. And I don't like to say it out loud because I don't want to, it, make, it makes me feel like I'm creating you know, more, I'm adding more to it, but I want my son to live and I want my son to be happy. Where many of my white friends, the conversation is where their kids are gonna go to school, what are they gonna do? their sports and whatever, the conversations with Black parents and their children, especially their boys, is be safe, know what to say, know how to say it when, you know, you're approached by a white person and especially a police officer, you know, where to put your hands, this and that. The conversations are much different. You know, my niece and nephews, they're white and their, their life experience is much different than my son's. And my son, you know, loves his cousins, but he can see there are specific interactions that have occurred that wouldn't have been the same for him. You know, that he's experienced, and he, my son is a sweetheart. You know, he deals with people walking on the other side of the street when he's walking down the street. He deals with people following him if he's at a store. He has white friends who have shoplifted and they don't get followed you know, at the mall, he would be followed, he and his friends, and they're not even thinking about anything. You know, and I know it's a teenage thing, so I'm sure there are Black kids who have, you know, shoplifted, but for him to see and for him to tell me, you know, specific names of people, and so-and-so did, and so-and-so, and I never even did anything, and they're following me around. It sends a clear message that they don't have, number one, they don't have the same rights. They don't have the same freedom. And I grew up with this. And that's, this is Portland when you talk about being progressive. And in Oregon, there's so much racism in the history. And because I am mixed, because my family is white, I have been in conversations that I probably wouldn't be in if I was raised with a Black family. People have had conversations with me. I do like for people to feel comfortable to say whatever so we can fix it because some people are, they're misunderstanding. And I've heard from people, well, they, you know, meaning the Black kids, Black community, just get a loan like anybody else. Well, there's redlining. And we're talking about current. This is not just history of like 300 years ago. This is still happening and people don't believe it. Oh, no, no, that's not true. Come on. It's not a race card. Who wants to play a race card? Yeah. Who wants to say, I need you to give me something because I can't get it on my own? What adult wants that life? Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. 
We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. Education's my background. I see these kids, no matter how liberal they grow up, what kind of household they're in, there's a competitiveness with most boys. There's a wanting to prove themselves, impress. But how do you think that feels to an African-American kid or Latino or Asian or somebody who has stereotypes on top of them? They can't live up to it. It's a lot of pressure. And then when they finally give up in middle school, high school, because this goes back into pre-K and kindergarten, I'm where I am because of my parents. And they fought for me and they pushed and they saw the difference in how my brothers were treated in the Portland public school system versus how I was treated. I mean, they saw it clear as day. Same last name, same address. But because of my ethnicity, I was put into certain tracks where my white friends were going to tag programs. Most of them, not all of them, most of them were, but none of my black friends were. In high school, my counselor, my ninth grade counselor, summer before my ninth grade year, I went in and I said, hey, I'd like to take French and theater. I had already taken French in middle school and I did really, really well at it. Theater was just something to break out of my shell. My parents thought that I was dramatic (laughs) at home. (laughs) And so they were like, you should really try this. And so I was willing to try something new. And I remember her name. I won't say it. This was Grant High School. This was 85 before the school year starting. And she told me, you're better off having life skills classes. And she was very sweet. I trusted her. I looked up to her because the way she spoke to me was very loving. She believed what she was saying. Now, whether it was intentional to keep me back or she really believed this what was best, it was bad either way. And she said, you need to do shop and home ec because you need to have these life skills classes. And I didn't know what she meant by it. And I was like, oh, but my mom and I, we looked through it and I want to I want to do French. And then my mom had signed me up for all the teachers who taught the honors classes, but they were teaching regular classes also. She felt like they would have high standards for me as well or and, and the students in that class. She didn't want me to just take random teachers. And she had researched. She talked to her friends. Who's good at this English? Who's good at, you know, math, whatever. My counselor took me off of all those teachers. And what I realized as I got older, like my junior, senior year, as I paid more attention to what happened, I saw that was another form of tracking. It was like a visual tracking. My mom, when I went home that day in ninth grade, And I put my schedule down. I went downstairs to go play with my friends, you know, whatever. She said, well, did you get your classes? I said, no. And she said, were they full? I said, I don't know. She said I needed some life skills classes. And all I know is I heard a slam of a door and tires screeching out of the driveway. And my mom was gone. Maybe like 45 minutes, hour later, she came back and she slammed the paper on the table. And she said, (laughs) now there you go. You've got your French and theater. But this is the thing. My mom is white. Imagine a black woman going back to the school, throwing a fit, Mm. getting in somebody's face and saying, what are you doing? This and that and the other. Would the outcome have been the same? Let me ask you, have you had that experience with your son? 
Absolutely. And he went to Grant his last two years of school, and he had a teacher who also taught at the university level or community college level, maybe, I'm not sure. And he did not teach. And he said, well, the kids are going to have to notice when they go to college. And I was talking to him. I said, okay, I understand. So while they're in high school, can you let him know, give him comments that let him know why he's missing the mark? Because I don't know where he's missing it, these writing samples. He would just have a grade at the top. The teacher was arrogant, rude, disrespectful, unprofessional. And when I went to go talk to the principal and vice principals, I had to explain very clearly my concerns. You know, I have to approach as, hi, I'd like to have a conversation about, you know, this and that. I have some concerns, you know, in my son's class. And this teacher has received complaints, multiple complaints, but he's still there. And like nobody can get him to teach the students. And then it affects students in all their other classes, you know, where my son generally did better, you know, got better grades. Mm -hmm. He began to fall off in other classes. Because when you have a teacher that just doesn't care and it chips away at a child's confidence when it only takes one person providing that lack of encouragement. Yeah. And I, I believe you can encourage a child so far. But that's one person, and my son's already experienced other people. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's, yes. it's not like he's a white boy in this class feeling he's being picked on, and everywhere in his life, he's feeling supported. He's still experiencing in his life other areas where kids, not just adults, mm-hmm. kids wouldn't speak or kids. Mm. You know, I mean, and kids can be mean anyway, socially. So yeah. then let's add race. Anything you have on there. I have a nephew who has lots and lots of energy. My brother can go into the school and say, hey, this isn't right. And this and that. A black man can't do that on behalf of his child in the same exact way. And that's the privilege that our students have too. And they know they have it. They know these kids at the school, they can feel it. There's a confidence that they grow up with that the Black kids do not get to grow up with. And it's unfortunate. I'm just wondering, how was raising your son in Atlanta different from raising your son in Portland? Oh my gosh. I loved his doctors were all Black. His nurses were all black, you know, so if you got bad service in a grocery store, it wasn't necessarily because of race. Here you have to wonder, okay, is a person having a bad day? Do they not like black people? Is this personal? Is it not? Because things happen so frequently. In the South, I'm not saying it's good, but it's way more open. My son got to see neighbors, black families, people together. He got to see people who look like him owning grocery stores, gas stations, private schools, running them. The school that I taught at was a private school and it was high 90% Black. We had mostly Black staff. It was amazing. So the issues that we had were not race. It was wonderful. The kids could actually just be themselves. 
Um, and I've thought about those kids recently that I taught because they're they're young adults now. And I've thought about them, wonder how some of them are doing. Some of them I feel like adjusted just fine. And some of them I, you know, I hope they're doing okay because it's a culture shock going from that to getting them this, where people smile on your face, but they vote against you. Mm. You know what to expect when you're in the Atlanta area. You know, they'll tell you up front, yeah, you're nice, I'll work with you, but I'm not voting for you. I'm not going to have a blank in this position or, you know, whatever. It, but it's clear. It's to the point. It's not saying it's okay, but just saying you at least know what the playing field looks like. Here, there's a lot of closet stuff. It still happens. Redlining, gentrification, walking through neighborhoods and people are looking at me like, what are you doing here? Shoot, I know what your house looks like. I know all the good hiding spots. I know I know where everything is. I could draw you a layout. And I want to say, bleep, what the bleep are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn, with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Word of mouth helps us find new listeners, so please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you. Sharing a meal with others is my favorite place to engage in deep, meaningful, and fun conversations. On the Four Top Podcast, three thought leaders join host Catherine Cole for a fast-moving roundtable discussion of the hot-button topics in food and beverage. The show covers a wide array of topics from farming to fine dining. The Four Top is a James Beard and IACP award-winning national food and beverage podcast presented by OPB for NPR One. Start listening now at thefortop.org, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.